weird spy intrigue in Moscow. Today, Tuesday, May 14th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Russian officials claim to have caught an American spy red-handed and wearing a blonde wig. It's all very bizarre. It's kind of detailed and yet amateuristic at the same time. Also, a video appears to show a Syrian rebel leader committing a gruesome atrocity. The group Human Rights Watch says it's verified the rebel's identity. We quickly realized that he was wearing the same jacket, had the same very distinctive scar under his left eye. And here in the U.S., immigrants on the front lines of the poultry industry doing the low-paid, dangerous work of packing chickens. And they make it fast, but we do what we have to do. Now I'm packing like 60 to 70 in one minute. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We begin the program today with Syria and a gruesome video that's emerged that highlights the brutal nature of the civil war there. It's a tough one to describe. The video appears to show a rebel fighter cutting out and biting the heart and liver of a dead government soldier. The man in the footage declares, we will eat your hearts and your livers, you soldiers of Bashar the dog, referring to Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Human Rights Watch obtained the video and verified the identity of the man in it as rebel commander Abu Sakar. Peter Bukhart works in the Geneva office of Human Rights Watch, and he's been examining the images. I started by asking Peter how he's been able to confirm that Abu Sakar is the man in the video. First of all, the video was um, also shared with Time magazine by the brother of Abu Sakar, the commander who's in the video, who verified um, that he is the one in the video. He's identified in the video as Abu Sakar. Uh, but we did our homework. Um, we did a forensic analysis of the video itself, and uh, we matched the clothes um, of the commander in the video to other videos of Abu Sakar um, where he's shown shelling villages inside Lebanon and posing with killed Hezbollah fighters. And we quickly realized that he was wearing the same jacket um, in those other videos and had the same uh, very distinctive scar under his left eye. Um, In addition, we were able to speak to four international journalists who met Abu Sakr um, in the city of Homs in 2011 and 2012 and confirmed his identity. And uh, Time magazine interviewed Abu Sakr directly, um, mm-hmm. and he confirmed that he is the person in the video and has more atrocity videos um, that he will be sharing. Yeah, I mean, this is really hard to talk about, it has to be said. So who is Abu Sakr, this rebel soldier, and what rebel group is he with? I think this is one of the more disturbing elements of the story. Abu Sakr is actually one of the founders of the mainstream Farouk um, Brigade, which is one of the largest um, brigades um, in the Free Syrian Army. It has some 20,000 members formed in the city of Homs. Last year in October, he broke off from the mainstream Farouk Brigade and formed his own quote-unquote independent Omar al-Farouk Brigade. But he still claims allegiance to the Free Syrian Army. Um, He's not a member of one of these extremist Islamist groups um, such as Jabhat al-Nusra. 
Um, he is a person who came out of the Free Syrian Army um, and has become more extremist and radicalized over time. So uh, has the Omar Farouk Brigade or the Free Syrian Army, either one of them, responded to uh, his claims that he did this? And what have they said? Yes, um, both the Syrian National Council and the leadership of the Free Syrian Army have strongly condemned uh, this video and the acts portrayed in it. They've strongly condemned the extreme sectarian language in the video, and they have said that they will try to bring him to account in a court of law. Um, Unfortunately, while we welcome those statements, um, we would like to see them translated into action. Um, and for the, both the Syrian National Council as well as the Free Syrian Army to take stronger steps to distance themselves from these extremist elements and to try to bring them to account when necessary. I mean, still very early to say, but what are the chances that uh, the perpetrator, if it is indeed this Abu Sakar, could end up in front of the International Criminal Court? The situation in Syria, even though the conflict has been going on for two years now, still has not been referred to the International Criminal Court. I would contrast that with the earlier fighting in Libya, which was referred by the UN Security Council to the International Criminal Court just weeks into the conflict in Libya. Um, Now we have 70,000 plus dead in Syria, and still the UN Security Council cannot agree to refer the horrendous situation with all of the war crimes and crimes against humanity which have been committed um, for international justice. I mean, it's so beyond the pale, this act, but do you have any sense of why uh, he did it, if he did it? Gruesome bravado, attention-getting? I and mean, Has the war just mentally destabilized a lot of people in Syria? Um, certainly it is a horrific act, an act of insanity and savagery. Um, but I think we have to place it in the context of um, the events of the last month, the open entry of Hezbollah fighters from Lebanon on the side of the Syrian government in the Battle of Qusair, where Abu Sakr is based, and then the retaliation by Abu Sakr by shelling Shia villages into Lebanon. And what we see is a very rapid descent into increased sectarian violence and increased extreme sectarian language in the conflict in Syria. And 70,000 dead in two years may seem like a tremendous toll already. But our fear is that if the violence in Syria really becomes this sectarian, when rebel commanders are speaking about slaughtering the Alawites or pro-government forces are committing the kind of massacres that were committed in Banyas on the coast against Sunni civilians just last week, we could see even a deadlier turn to the fighting in Syria, which will affect not only Syria, Uh, but also Lebanon um, and the broader region, because it will be very difficult to contain the spillover effects from a truly sectarian conflict in Syria, as we already see with the shelling of Shia villages um, inside Lebanon and the car bombs which went off in Turkey just a few days ago. You've worked, Peter, in many places have, have seen atrocious acts, but have you ever seen this? You know, one might think that uh, such events would shock the world into doing something about the atrocious situation in Syria. But what's the risk that this kind of news, this kind of video, dehumanizes the Syrian conflict, putting up an even bigger obstacle to intervention? You know, I I think it is correct to say that um, this video places the West um, in a real dilemma. On the one sense, um, it is an alarm call, a wake-up call to the West. But on the other end, it also shows just how complex the conflict in Syria has become and how limited the options of intervention really are. 
uh, because the last thing you want to do is to start sending in weapons and having them end up in the hands of people like Abu Sakr, um, who are determined to go and massacre an entire community, um, sectarian community, who they see as their enemies. Peter Bookhart is an expert in humanitarian crises. He works for Human Rights Watch in Geneva. Peter, thanks for your thoughts on this. Thank you. Now to Russia and a story that seems straight from the pages of a spy novel. Just don't know yet if it's fiction or nonfiction. Here's what we do know. Russia's security services say they caught a U.S. diplomat disguised in a blonde wig as they tried to recruit a Russian intelligence agent in Moscow. The diplomat, identified as Ryan Fogel, was detained and accused of being an undercover CIA agent. Miriam Elder is a Moscow correspondent for the British Daily, The Guardian. Uh, First of all, describe the basics, Miriam, please. Who is this man from the U.S. Embassy and how did he get caught? Well, Ryan Fogel is the third uh, political secretary at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. And what we know is all coming from uh, the FSB and the Foreign Ministry. So around 11.30 p.m. Monday night, FSB officers say they intercepted uh, Fogel trying to recruit a intelligence officer that works on the North Caucasus, which is the troubled region in Russia's south, which importantly is where the suspected Boston bombers initially came from. Right. Now, the FSB is uh, kind of the Russian version of the FBI. What did the American embassy have to say about Ryan Fogel? Uh, The American embassy isn't commenting at all. I have just seen some statements coming across the wires from D.C., the State Department spokesman, I believe, saying um, just confirming that Fogel was indeed an employee of the embassy. And what has the FSB said about Ryan Fogel and what he was trying to do? Uh, well, they said that uh, they caught him with a lot of very bizarre spy gear. A lot of attention has been focused on the fact that he was caught with a couple of very shabby wigs and a bunch of glasses and a random map and compass of Moscow in 2013. It's a bit bizarre. Uh, so they've just focused on that, saying that he was caught. And the foreign ministry, of course, has issued a, a statement saying that they've declared him persona non grata, calling it you know reminiscent of the Cold War and saying that it does not improve the atmosphere of trust between the U.S. and Russia. I mean, the spy gear, the list is kind of weird. It's what a central casting in Hollywood would kind of drum up as props for an old spy movie. What's been the reaction in Moscow to this? Well, it's led, as you would imagine, than all the state-run TV news reports. I wouldn't say it's being treated quite as funny as perhaps some of the Western commentary it is taking it. What I've been doing recently is reading about a scandal that we had here a few years ago, where if you remember, there was a a spy rock where Russia accused uh, the Brits of planting a transmitter inside a fake rock. Everybody laughed it off, but it turned out in the end to be true. So it's a very confusing story. Who knows if, if it's true or not? There are a lot of weird facts right now. Contrast the fake rock with uh, the, this bag of gear that uh, that Ryan Fogel allegedly had with him. Right now, it's more of a comparison probably than a contrast. They're just really weird. It seems like something, you know, out of really a, a spy movie from the 1960s. So in the one case, you had this fake rock in the middle of, you know, a, a sort of strip of park alongside a pavement uh, in Moscow that was being used to transmit messages back and forth. And then you have this full bag of bizarro spy gear, as I mentioned, the wigs. And one of the weirdest things is this letter that was found. Right. Tell us about that, because it's like this letter of instructions addressed to a Russian agent. What did it say? 
Well, precisely. I mean, a lot of people are saying, you know, that it reminds it reminds them of these like Nigerian money scam letters, you know, that you get in your spam. Yeah. So it starts saying, dear friend, and we appreciate your professionalism and we will pay you a hundred thousand dollars if you agree to tell us about your experience and we'll pay you a million dollars for long term cooperation. And then it goes into details of like how to set up a Gmail account to go on Wi-Fi, not to include any personal details. Um, and it's signed at the end, you know, your friends. It's all very bizarre. It's kind of detailed and yet amateuristic at the same time. Have you ever seen like a real spy to spy letter? Does this one scan as a real spy letter to you? It seems really, really bizarre. I, I can't quite figure it out yet. Everybody here is, is really quite confused so far. And of course, the embassy isn't talking. Right. Now, we hear that the Cold War is over, but maybe it's not completely over. Russia's FSB said today there have been numerous U.S. attempts to recruit Russians to their side. So is there a reason the Russians are making a big deal of this Ryan Fogel case? Well, that's the interesting question. And when uh, one British official finally admitted to the spy rock being true, he said, you know, they had us for a while and they just used the right political moment to bring this to light. So you have to kind of wonder why uh, the FSB has chosen to publicize this now. It's coming as the U.S. and Russia are supposedly trying to reach some sort of an agreement on on how to work together to end the war in Syria. Uh, it might just be a way to kind of embarrass the U.S., frankly. That's all that I can think of for now, but we're still watching it very closely. I'm sure it'll develop over the next couple of days. Miriam Elder, the Moscow correspondent for The Guardian, thanks very much. Thank you. Still to come on the show, Dirt Mound or Mayan Temple, and can you really confuse the two? This is The World on PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Actress Angelina Jolie stunned the world today with an op-ed piece in The New York Times. Jolie revealed she's undergone a preventive double mastectomy because she wanted to minimize her chances of developing breast cancer due to a faulty gene she carries. Jolie's public announcement stands in contrast to the shame breast cancer still carries in many countries. But she isn't alone in having the courage to tell her story. Samia Al-Amudi is a Saudi Arabian obstetrician and gynecologist. In 2006, she was diagnosed with breast cancer and decided to write about it, making her one of the first Saudi women to go public about the experience of the disease. Dr. Al-Amudi, what was your reaction when you heard that uh, Angelina Jolie had announced she had undergone a preventive double mastectomy? To be honest, it touched my heart. I felt the pain, and I could imagine the uh situation and her feelings at that moment. When I read as well that she has a history, a family history, her mother passed away at the age of 56, it touched the feeling of any woman. I mean, in 2006, you went public about having breast cancer, but obviously there are some key differences. You're Saudi, you live in a conservative society. Why did you decide to go public? Well, let me be very honest with you. I felt that uh, being a doctor, this is a responsibility, first of all. So I felt that I have to go, I have to break the silence. One of my uh, senior doctors, he told me, well, now you've got breast cancer. It's better that you keep the information just within the closed family. My family was reluctant to tell anybody. Then I started to think 
Well, why should we keep it secret? It's not a taboo. It's not something bad to tell the people, and uh, it's a responsibility. In Saudi Arabia, although there is a big change, but a lot of people, they will not talk about cancer in general. They will never mention the word cancer. Even when I started to show up on the TV, telling people about my story and the experience, how to look after themselves, I remember one of my colleagues, she said, what happened to her? Did the uh, chemotherapy affect her brain? So you start writing about it, you appear on TV, you're using the word cancer. What was the reaction? Well, I stress the point that I insist on using the word cancer. I never say any other word. And, and do you also say this is breast cancer, using the phrase breast cancer? Exactly, because it's just an organ like any other organ, and it's a disease like any other disease, and it's a way of breaking the silence, encouraging other women to go and talk and to go and have mammography, because there's a lot of misconceptions about the disease. People think that if you got breast cancer, it means a sentence of death. So, doctor, you've led by example in Saudi Arabia. Do you feel that as a doctor you were able to to move the cultural attitudes? Did you give license to other women in Saudi Arabia to open up, to get mammograms? You see, we underestimated our people a lot because when I started to write in the newspaper, even my family were very, very reluctant. And I cannot tell you the number of comments on my articles, comments on my interviews in the TV from men and from women. It was really surprising to me, to my family, to everybody. As if they were just waiting for somebody to go and encourage them to talk about it and encourage them to go and do mammography. The other thing, I believe that media is the strongest tool to have outreach, to be a life example, being a doctor, being an advocate, being a patient and a survivor. It gives them more confidence. Samia Alamudi heads the Alamudi Center of Excellence in Breast Cancer in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Dr. Alamudi, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much. Apparently, a candid discussion of the conditions in garment factories in Bangladesh remains elusive, even after more than 1,100 garment workers died in that building collapse there last month, and even after numerous fatal accidents in other garment factories in Bangladesh over the years. But things seem to be beginning to change. Today, the Bangladesh government agreed to lift restrictions on forming trade unions and pledged to raise wages. And some of the world's biggest clothes retailers have been signing on to a pact to improve safety in factories. And believe it or not, there are some positive effects from the massive growth of the garment industry in Bangladesh. Professor Mushfik Mubarak is an economist at the Yale School of Management. So, Professor, you've discovered some good news here, yeah? Uh, yes. So the households that have better access to factories, parents now see that job opportunities are opening up for women in a country that otherwise did not traditionally have many opportunities for women to work outside the home. So now there suddenly are returns to educating women because these factories require at least basic numeracy and literacy. And the parents respond by keeping their girls in school. So young five to 10 year old girls become more likely to stay enrolled in school. And fast forward 10 to 15 years, and you find that these same girls become less likely to be married off at an early age, like age 16 or 18. And they are also less likely to have their first childbirth at an early age, like age 16 or 18. So these are all 
very important welfare benefit for Bangladeshi women in particular. Right, so important benefits, population control, girls in school, working women. But uh, there's another study, a a Canadian NGO uh, found that of 1,700 women, many of them suffered from horrible health problems because they work long hours. Many of them received a low income and therefore had to supplement that income by becoming prostitutes. How do you see that study in relation to yours? Uh, Of course, the working conditions at these garments are far, far from ideal. But we do have to keep the context in mind that we are talking about one of the poorest nations on earth. And the real question to ask is what would have happened to these women had the factories not been available? Even though these jobs come with a lot of risks and a lot of negative working conditions, that even given those caveats, that these women tend to be better off than other rural Bangladeshi women who do not have access to these factory jobs. Right. So what are the options for these women other than working in a factory? Typically, it has been staying at home and doing more household work and supporting their husbands in in mostly agricultural work. Farming and agriculture in Bangladesh remains the number one uh, economic driver, correct? It's a sector that employs most people, but it's a very unproductive sector compared to manufacturing. And so while manufacturing, like garment manufacturing, only accounts for a small share of the overall number of employees, it accounts now for 90% of Bangladesh's exports. So it is the main driver of the economy now. Now, having said all of that, it is absolutely correct that in spite of all the positive human development impacts of manufacturing growth in Bangladesh on women's welfare, we should be trying to do more. And the only silver lining in the horrible, horrible news items that have come out over the past year is that it's focused our attention on how to improve these working conditions. Right. And now many Western clothing companies have agreed to sign a pact memorandum of understanding approving the safety in these factories. I mean, do do you see that as a good step? And how much will that really take care of the problems? It is absolutely an important step in the right direction and is a necessary step. You do need money to bring these buildings up to code install fire exits, and the consortium led by H&M, that they will invest in safety improvements in Bangladesh, along with making a commitment that they'll remain in Bangladesh. And because of that, it's very important that Walmart, Gap, other American retailers actually join the Europeans who've made this announcement. That's Mushfik Mubarak, an economist at Yale School of Management. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead on the World, a film about child survivors of the Holocaust. When you are such an incredible small percentage of survivors, there is something special that you have to do. You have to have money. You have to use tricks. You have to lie. You have to deceive. In the process, you may actually do damage to some other people. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Womenheart, and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. One of the first things children learn is that you're not supposed to lie. So imagine the circumstances that would force you to advise your children never forget to lie. That was the experience of many Jewish parents in Poland during the Holocaust. The best chance they could give their children for survival was to give them up and compel them to hide their Jewish identity. 
Filmmaker Marian Marzynski was one of those children. He recently returned to Poland with other child survivors of the Holocaust who had to adopt fake identities to survive. Those stories are the focus of Marzynski's latest film, Never Forget to Lie, which airs on PBS's Frontline tonight. When Marzynski was a child, his parents were forced to abandon him, putting him on a horse-drawn wagon with a woman he called a guide. He says the moment he pulled away has haunted him his entire life. That was the horse wagon when I was uh, uh, where where my guide was uh, was uh, putting her hand on my on my mouth and I was screaming I want to go back to the ghetto and you were uh, five years old yeah and I want to go to mommy and that that's this whole idea of going through the wall and uh, bribing the policeman going the wall outside the, the Warsaw ghetto uh, right yeah. when there were blackmailers on the other side and. Um, Running uh, before the curfew hour, uh, after after giving after bribing the policeman and and being uh, finally safe on the Christian side. I, I mean, it's shocking and sad to see uh, this people you speak with recall what happened to them uh, during the war. It's almost like they revert to their childhood. Uh, it's like it happened yesterday for some of them. Have they told these stories before? Most of us were not doing it because it was not it was not good for us. Our parents did our parents did the job of bringing the Holocaust memory, until boom, we are old and the things come to our dreams, and we just realize that it's unfinished business, that the child knocks to our our mind, and that is actually a universal phenomenon, regardless of circumstances. So I just realized that, that my film will not be a Holocaust film. It will be not, not about historic events, but it will be about the child's mind and the trauma. And in fact, I mean, you weren't setting out to make this movie. It was an event that took place in Poland, a gathering of child survivors. I mean, w- without that gathering, without that meeting, would you have made this movie? Probably not. Uh, I had to have an idea, and I didn't have any. Finally, I learned that a bunch of child survivors, uh, after 21 years of meeting in different places, uh, uh, decided to meet in Warsaw. The idea that was rejected by them over these years because it was too traumatic. So I said that the hundred of, of uh, almost hundred of, of Warsaw ghetto children gathering in the Marriott Hotel five minutes from the Warsaw ghetto is the the most incredible uh, casting call that, that, that I will never able to do myself. So I said, that's the idea. I want to ask you about one woman in particular who recalls what her Jewish father did, did in the ghetto. He was one of the residents who uh, policed uh, his uh, community members on behalf of the Nazis. Um, his daughter seems to still be dealing with what that implies. Um, she says, to, to survive, you need to become an animal. What, what struck you most about her? That uh, that she is revealing something that a naughty child can reveal, something that, that probably was not part of the story of the previous generation uh, because there was this uh, ambivalent feelings about those Jews who were in the uh, police force, uh, uh, Jewish police, uh, that they were helping, of course, deportations, but also they were saving lives of some people. In some cases, they were bribed or whatever. And um, it, it, it's, the, it's, it's one of the murky sides of, of survival. Is The survival is never clean. When, when you are at such an incredible small percentage 
of survivors. There is something special that you have to do. You have to have money. You have to use tricks. You have to lie. You have to deceive. In the process, you may actually do damage to some other people. Uh, that's, the, that's the human jungle that she describes. Marian Marzinski's film about the Jewish children who survived the Holocaust in Poland by hiding their identity is called Never Forget to Lie. It airs on Frontline tonight. Marian Marzinski, thank you so much. Thank you. The Maya civilization once dominated Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula and parts of Central America, but a centuries-long decline left little but the ruins of that civilization, among them the pyramids we associate with the Maya today. The earlier pyramids really do seem to be uh, temples to the gods. Later on in time, after about AD 600, pyramidal structures were built as giant temples for rulers after they died. Well, one of those temples is the focus of our geoquiz today. Archaeologists in a Central American country say a Mayan pyramid more than 2,000 years old was recently demolished there. A road building crew reportedly bulldozed it. Name the country, which borders Mexico and Guatemala. We'll be back with more on what happened to the pyramid in just a few minutes. Now, before you bite into your fast food, consider this. Butchering meat and processing chickens is dangerous, low-paying factory work. And a lot of it in this country is done by immigrant workers, sometimes illegally. So this is one area of the economy where immigration reform could have a huge impact. Reporter Anna Boyko Wyrock sent us this story from Missouri. In a small apartment in Knoll, Missouri, seven roommates from Somalia get ready for the night shift. Saida Cha'ama fries up meat and onion sambusas, a stuffed pastry. Next, she'll head across the river to a poultry processing plant run by Tyson Foods and work until early morning. Are you going to good? Cha'ama says America's been good to her. Tyson wages start at nine bucks an hour, no English required. But it's repetitive, dangerous work, and employee burnout is high. If she's injured or finds another opportunity, another immigrant worker would likely step in. Doris Meissner of Migration Policy Institute explains. The poultry industry has been one of several industries that has had the clear experience that it needs foreign-born workers or access to foreign-born workers as part of its workforce. Outside the Tyson plant, a sign reads, Now hiring. Call today. But it's immigrants and refugees, not locals, flocking to work here. At 4.30 p.m., night shift workers arrive at the plant. Some wear flowered skirts and others hijabs. The 1,500 or so employees come from Africa, the Pacific, Latin America. At some meat plants, workers are hired illegally, and there have been crackdowns. In 2001, Tyson was charged with smuggling in workers from Mexico. It was later acquitted. Now, the food industry is lobbying Washington to make it easier to hire immigrants, 
legally. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I appreciate the opportunity to testify. That's Mike Brown, today. head of the National Chicken Council, recently testifying in Washington. We seek workers who will stay on the job to become skilled and efficient, helping us. Washington may grant millions of immigrants legal status. It may also let in more guest workers, and unlike before, let workers switch jobs instead of being tied to one employer. Doris Meissner calls that a breakthrough. That is a very important new dynamic to put into the equation because that is what gives workers leverage. How this might play out if immigrant workers get legal status, more rights, it's unclear. For now, many immigrants say they'll continue doing the tough work. In her living room, Irma Brown from Guatemala shows me how she trims chicken at the Tyson factory. Grab the carcass, flip it, hack off the wings, repeat. She does this for hours every day. She's proud of her work. She's bought a house, can support her kids. But it's worn down her wrists and arms. Brown's had three surgeries, but her hands still cramp up. Sometimes she can't sleep. She loses her grip on things, she says. She'll suddenly drop plates of food on the floor. Now I'm packing like 60 to 70 in one meal. That's Merlina Manuel from Micronesia. She talks about working in freezing temperatures, quickly packing chicken and foam trays. If the order is really big and the time is really short, then they make it fast. Sometimes we really shout and say what's going on, but we do what we have to do. This work could intensify if regulators allow plants to speed up the processing line. Officials argue new rules could help contain bacteria. It would also save companies like Tyson money. Advocates worry that workers' injuries, already notorious, will increase. Tyson spokesman Gary Michelson says the company's policies prevent injuries. We care about our employees. We value them. We want to make sure they're safe on the job. Uh, the right to a safe workplace is, is a part of our team member Bill of Rights. Some immigrant workers want out. Karina Vega worked illegally at chicken plants for years after migrating from Mexico. Now she and other ex-poultry workers run a new Mexican restaurant across the street from the Tyson plant. Vega says she needs both hands to raise her kids. She says if the factories weren't so tough, maybe she would have stayed on. For now, though, Tyson and companies like it will count on someone else, perhaps another immigrant, to fill Vega's spot. For The World, I'm Anna Boyko-Wyrock in Knoll, Missouri. Archaeologists are up in arms today after learning that an ancient Mayan pyramid has been destroyed. It happened in the Central American nation of Belize. That's the answer to our geoquiz. Construction workers apparently bulldozed the pyramid, which was more than 2,000 years old, and used the crushed rock as road fill. Belizean police are investigating. Patricia McEnany is an archaeologist at the University of North Carolina. She spent years studying the Mayan ruins in northern Belize. Can you tell us what happened, as far as you know, to this 2,300-year-old Mayan pyramid? What state is it in now? Well, from what I can piece together, the uh, bulldozer uh, just gnawed into the side of this beautiful 2,000-year-old structure and I was not there when it happened, but I've seen images of it. And you can see all the laboriously cut uh, soft limestone blocks that are exposed along the mutilated edge of the pyramid. 
I mean, I've seen pictures of the remnants, and it's hard to tell. Is it a pile of earth? I mean, there's grass and little shrubs growing on top. Or is it a Mayan pyramid? I mean, could the workers have been confused? No, they wouldn't have been confused at all because northern Belize is a very, very flat landscape. So just about any hill in northern Belize is a humanly built construction. Um, The bulldozer operator knew exactly what uh, he or she was doing. So what's been the reaction from archaeologists and Mayan scholars? Well, we are appalled. It's an absolute desecration of a place that has a very special significance, especially for the Yucatec Mayan population living right next door to Nakmul. Uh, the people of San Jose and San Pablo feel that this is a very special place, and uh, now it has been greatly damaged uh, in a way that is irreparable. I know that the National Institute of Culture History in Belmopan has been waging a battle against this for many, many years, for decades. And it's a wanton disregard for Maya cultural heritage. And um, from what I have heard, it's possible that criminal charges will be put forth. And I certainly hope that that happens because uh, this has to end. This has to stop. Right. So uh, Belmapan is the capital of Belize. What was going on in this area 2,300 years ago? Why did the Maya build these pyramids? Northern Belize was very populated 2,000 years ago. It was a real hub of innovation. And this is a, a part of the world in which People had figured out how to live sustainably using a fairly intense form of agriculture, tropical agriculture, but to do it sustainably for a period of 2,000 years. It's an area in which some of the innovations in uh, wetland farming technology first happened. It is really a center, a kind of a heartland for many of the innovations that created what we call classic Maya civilization. I mean, if criminal charges are brought, it could prevent anybody from uh, doing this again. But really, what is to prevent this from happening again? Vigilance. And Belize is a very small little country. It's a multicultural country with a Maya population, a large Creole population. I think what really needs to happen is for everyone to respect the cultural heritage of everyone else in the country. And I think this is an indicator that there's a lot of dialogue and conversation that has yet to happen about Maya cultural heritage, uh, not only with descendant populations, but also with all the populations living in this part of the world, because it's a really important area for our heritage. Archaeologist Patricia McEnany at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, helping us with the answer to our geoquiz today, which is Belize. Patricia, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. This is The World and TheWorld.org on PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, the pressure cooker. I've been using one to cook dry beans faster and take care of my health. But since the Boston Marathon bombings, the noble pressure cooker's taken on a whole new sinister image, going from smart kitchen appliance to homemade explosive device, and has put U.S. authorities on alert. Today, a Saudi man faced a court hearing in Detroit for traveling to the U.S. with a pressure cooker and lying about it to federal officials. His nephew, who's a student in Ohio, says it was all a misunderstanding. He says he asked his uncle to bring him the pressure cooker so he could make lamb. 
Reporter Deepak Singh has his own story about airport security and traveling with a pressure cooker. It was 2003. I was at the airport in New Delhi, getting ready to board the flight to come to the United States for the first time. I was nervous. I had two suitcases, one red and one green. Both of them had to go through a security check. The red suitcase made it through the x-ray machine. Someone pulled it out the other end and put a tag on the handle. It seemed like everything was going to be okay, and I started to feel a little relaxed. When the second suitcase went through, a police officer shouted, Grab that green suitcase. He looked at me and said, What do you have in it? Before I could answer his question, he rudely asked me to open it. I hesitated, because there were a few things in it that I would have rather shown in private than in front of 50 people under bright lights. I looked at the officer and he stared back at me, signaling me to hurry up. As soon as I opened it, he ruffled through my carefully packed suitcase. My mother and I had spent hours arranging and rearranging it. We had packed sweets, pickles, medicines, underwear, socks, that sort of thing. I was nervous and sad, but what really embarrassed me was what the police officer pulled out of the suitcase. It was a pressure cooker. My wife in America had asked me to bring it with me because she enjoyed cooking Indian food. But before she could have it, the security guy hoisted our brand new, shiny, stainless steel pressure cooker as if it were a trophy, not an appliance. Everyone burst into laughter, except for me. The x-ray machine had gotten confused by its shape and sent strange signals. After a few minutes, he let me repack my suitcase, including the pressure cooker. It's been 10 years since that happened. The question that comes to my mind is, would the police still have laughed at my pressure cooker if I were traveling to the United States today? I wonder. Reporter Deepak Singh there on traveling with a pressure cooker. Finally today, we visit the city of Lviv in western Ukraine. They like their martial arts there. Local gyms advertise kickboxing, karate, and mixed martial arts. But over the past two decades, there's also been a movement to popularize a mythical martial art that some claim is indigenous to Ukraine. Ashley Kleek reports from Lviv. The Office of the International Federation of Boyevy Hopak, or Fighting Hopak, is a small house in a courtyard in the center of Lviv. Inside, one wall is draped in a giant blue and yellow Ukrainian flag. Plastic swords and guns fan out along the walls. There are dozens of pictures of fighting Hopak's creator, Volodymyr Stepanovich Pilat, dressed in the shirt and belted baggy pants of a Cossack, a legendary Ukrainian soldier. I'm a Cossack. I'm a warrior. For me, this is normal. Pilat is massive. With a shaved head and trimmed gray beard, he looks intimidating. And he means to. Pilat thinks of himself as a 21st century Cossack warrior. A warrior is a clean person. A person with honor and pride. Pilat used to be a successful karate master in Lviv. But in 1985, as Pilat tells it, he made a discovery. He was watching a traditional Ukrainian dance called the Hopak. The dance you probably think of as Russian, where men squat and kick their legs to the side. Traditionally, Holpak was a Cossack victory dance. In the jumps, the men's legs are outstretched. They could almost be a kick. Or at least that's what Pilat saw. A hidden Cossack martial art. Back in his office, Pilat dances in a square. This is one of the dance steps. It's called the sofony. See? And then I can attack like this or like that. For two years, Pilat says, he developed fighting Hopak alone. In the 20 years since, Hopak has become hugely popular. It's taught in schools as part of physical education. 
The goal was to create a sport and cultivate national pride. In a pastel blue middle school gym in the suburbs, 13 boys kneel facing their teacher. Every Fighting Hopak class starts the same, with a shout, Glory to Ukraine. Then the class prays and sings a traditional Ukrainian song. The boys run in a circle, forwards and backwards. They crawl like crabs. Then they practice fighting. There are high jumps, roundhouse kicks, and leaps. Men and women do hopak, but this class is all young men and boys. One solemn-faced seven-year-old says he is learning fighting hopak so he can become a Cossack. You can get stronger. You can become a Cossack and be powerful. Basically, the main myth is a myth about the Cossacks. Yaroslav Herzog is a history teacher at the Ukrainian Catholic University in Lviv. Ukraine has been independent for just over 20 years, since the breakup of the Soviet Union. And Herzog explains, fighting Hopak has been a big help as Ukraine builds a new nation. You could not build a nation from scratch. You have to have building blocks. If you're talking about the building blocks, the Cossack block is the most important. It's like a myth of the West in the United States. But, Herzog says, fighting Hopak may not just be about national pride. It may be helping to fuel Ukraine's burgeoning nationalism, popularized by a far-right party called Svoboda. Pilat denies any affiliation with Svoboda. His opponents say Pilat is using fighting Hopak to create a band of nationalist warriors. Pilat says this is ridiculous. I created Hopak so that Ukrainians have their own martial art, like Chinese Kung Fu, Americans kickboxing, and they labeled me a nationalist that I don't like others. I don't understand that. But, Pilat says, the allegations have hurt the sport. Some cities in eastern Ukraine have forbidden fighting Hopak. But in the Ukrainian diaspora, the sport seems to be flourishing. There are schools in Portugal, Italy, Latvia, even Chicago. However, Pilat has a bigger goal, that fighting Hopak will one day become an Olympic sport. That's unlikely, but with its combination of sport and national pride, Hopak has tapped into something powerful and infectious in the Ukrainian spirit. For The World, I'm Ashley Kleek, Lviv. You can see video of the fighting Hopak in action at theworld.org. And tomorrow, why should men have all the fun? What Ukrainians always try to do, they always try to find the unique Ukrainian way for martial arts, for women's liberation, for whatever, you know. A look at the new warrior movement among women, the Amazons of Ukraine. That's tomorrow right here on The World. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. By the Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International.